Oleg Benish is a uh, historian, a senior lecturer at uh, the University of York in the UK. Is that, it's either York University or University of York. Which one is it, Oleg? Uh, University of York. York University is the one in Canada. Which... Yeah, okay, okay, <laughs> University of York. And he writes books about samurais, about castles, um, and about emotions. Um, in, I can share, let me share, though, he has a website. And it is um, olegbenesh.com. And it's, it's got, uh, we have information about his book, The Way of the Samurai, the Inventing the Way of the Samurai, Nationalism, Internationalism, and Bushido in Modern Japan, which came out in 2014 and paperback 2016. Uh, his book about Japan's castles, Citadels of Modernity and War and Peace. Um, and the collection Civilizing Emotions Concept in 19th Century Asia and Europe. So, where shall we begin, um, Oleg? Let's, which came first, the castles or the samurai or the martial arts or, the, or just a, an interest in Japan? Where did it all begin? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I guess, well, I, uh, I was born and raised in Alaska, which um, is, I think for many people, kind of surprisingly... Um, close to Japan. Um, I mean, well, Alaska was one of the, I think it might have been the only part of the US that was occupied by Japan in the Second World War. Um, but more so than that, I mean, I guess we always had very strong links with Japan. I mean, you know, during the Cold War, the only way you could travel between Europe and East Asia, especially Japan, was through Anchorage, Alaska, because you couldn't fly over Soviet airspace. Um, and so my family is, is German. And every year, you know, growing up, we'd fly back to Germany and, you know, we'd get in the plane in Anchorage and it would be us and usually about 300 Japanese businessmen um, <laughs> that would be flying over over the pole. Um, and so we always had these really strong connections um, with Japan and East Asia in general. And then at university, I studied philosophy for my undergraduate. And a lot of that was actually Chinese philosophy. I studied comparative philosophy, um, Chinese, and then got in Japanese philosophy as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then after university, I, I had quite a few Japanese friends and just decided to move to Japan. And I don't know, I ended up living there for about six years in total. Um, mm -hmm. Still go back quite frequently. But it was during that time in Japan that I started getting interested in, in some of the ideas I'm working on now. And I guess it's, it's been about 20 years now since I started, especially working on Bushido, mm -hmm. kind of the way of the samurai. Mm -hmm. um, and... I guess I'm trying to think, I mean, reading various kind of samurai inspired, let's say comic books or, you know, things like Ninja were obviously everywhere in popular culture. Um, I mean, even something like the Ninja Turtles in the nineties. Mm -hmm. um, but then, I mean, one film that did actually quite stick with me was the uh, film Ghost Dog. Oh yeah. With yeah. Forrest Whitaker as, you know, kind of this kind of mafia hitman. Um, who lives according to this this book of the samurai. Um, and I remember buying that book, which is the Hagakure, essentially, um, from early 18th century text, and reading that and, yeah, being um, a bit confused, as I think just about everyone who reads the Hagakure um, is still a bit confused about it. Um, and then just kind of digging a bit deeper, reading Nitobe Inazo's book, Bushido, uh, The Soul of Japan, which is quite um, famous, published around 1900, and just kind of getting more and more into this and kind of looking, you know, what this actually means and trying to figure out um, 
yeah, why it's why it's so significant and really how old it is. Um, and I think that's that's one of the things that's that's always interested me is trying to get to the origins of things. Um, and that you know that if that's bushido, if it's you know martial arts as well, that's something in martial arts obviously where people are always looking for for the origins. Mm-hmm. And then how once you've gotten to those origins, how have we gotten from those origins to where those things are today? So mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think came from kind of a big mix of things originally. Okay, so um, so with the with the the samurai book, I mean, the people think of the samurai as ancient, and people conflate um, the the idea of um, samurai with kamikaze, with some kind of essence of Japanese determination and commitment. But it's more complicated than that, isn't it? I mean, the, the argument in, in your work is, is that there were processes of reinvention and kind of reimagining of Japanese identity and the samurai became a figure of that at, at a certain point in relatively modern times. Is that mm-hmm. correct? No, that's, that's yeah, a very, summary probably better one than, than I could give um but essentially I, I think it's been in many people's interests throughout um you know the modern period especially in the imperial period in Japan so 1868 to 1945 there's been a lot of interest in trying to establish a continuity with kind of ancient martial ideals and then the modern kind of well, really, the modern military is would be the focal point of this, but um, that you know these supposedly ancient warriors, and you try to trace those back as far as you possibly can. You look at a lot of the texts from the early twentieth century, and they're they're looking for the origins of Japan's martial ideals in mm. you know kind of the, on, in the plane of high heaven and the age of the gods. Um, that's not mentioned quite so so frequently anymore. Um, but people are trying to push it back as far as they can. And I mean, certainly we have warriors, we have uh, swords, we have fighting, we have all these things going back really as far as, as you want to look. But when this kind of idea of, of a samurai as kind of a specific warrior emerges, um, that's a much kind of trickier issue. And I mean, we have people arguing for over a span of many centuries as to when they, they actually emerged. Um, one thing, I mean, regardless of, of where we start, if if we want to put the samurai in kind of the the ninth century or the twelfth century or the fourteenth century, or the sixteenth century, um, one of the important things, though, is I think there is an, a key disconnect that happens in the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, where there is kind of a break with whatever is there before. Um, and so many of things, I mentioned the Hakagakure, this book earlier, which, you know, is written in the early 18th century. And most of the things that we see as kind of the, the key texts of kind of Bushido or samurai ideology now um, are written in kind of the period between about 1600 um, and the 1850s. Because mm-hmm. this, this was essentially a period of peace. Um, the samurai were largely bureaucrats rather than warriors and they actually had time to think about mm-hmm. um what it was that set them apart from the rest of the population and why they were you know on top of of society Mm -hmm. and they essentially justified this role by um their kind of martial role um that they were these these warriors who were role model for all of society Mm -hmm. what that meant varied greatly and there wasn't you know one kind of uniform code or samurai identity during during that period at all 
Mm. Um, so we have a lot of different texts coming out during this time. But what we have then, especially with the 1860s, 1870s, is there's quite a backlash against the old order, so to speak, um, after the Tokugawa shogunate is overthrown in 1868. Um, there is a large movement towards westernization. People don't want to think about these kind of feudal relics anymore. Um, things like castles, for example, across Japan are torn down. Um, no one really wants to have anything to do with the samurai anymore. And they're quite negatively portrayed. And then it's only really in the late 1880s and then in the 1890s that this past kind of gets rediscovered and reinvented. And that's actually in the 1890s is the first time that we really see this concept of Bushido coming up. I mean, the term is almost not used um, before that. So there's one or two texts that mention it a couple of times. Mm. But if you just said that to someone in, in you know, 18th century Japan, um, they wouldn't have known what, what you're talking about. So it's, a, it's, I mean, you connect it explicitly with nationalism. So it's about, it's about the emergence into like the, the, the modern world organized by the concept of the nation and international mm -hmm. relations produced um, and trade organized in these terms as well. So it's, is it the strong, like if you were to look at all the ingredients that go into the production of a, of a Japanese sense of national identity in the 19th century and early 20th century, mm -hmm. where would you, where would, like how big and how important is the concept of Bushido or the, or the invented traditional memory of the samurai? Is it a big one or are there, what other ingredients go into that? Mm. Um, so there, I, there are a lot of different, ingredients i mean some there's some important concepts like the yamato spirit yamato damashi is one that that's brought up quite a bit at the time and i think bushido specifically becomes very important around that time because you have the the sino-japanese war in 1894-95 where you know japan defeats china and then 1904-05 you have the russo-japanese war where you know, japan defeats russia and suddenly i mean japan is a major world power and people are looking for reasons for this success hmm. um in the sino-japanese war there's still kind of this idea that well japan just westernized more successfully than china did mm -hmm. you know both of them are using ships built um well largely in kind of uh tyne side <laughs> um and most of them well there's this idea that yeah japan is just westernized more successfully but then when they defeat russia then it's like well there must be something else going on Mm. Um, and because these military successes are so important to the national identity at that time, and especially what the government is pushing, um, I think something like Bushido, this martial ethic, is that much more important. And after the Russo-Japanese War, you see it coming into the education system, um, both civilian and military education systems. Um, there's a lot of popular culture. There are all sorts of um, kind of samurai stories going around. This is really when we see also a lot of uh, kind of a ninja boom in the 1910s, mm. um, where a lot of fiction about ninjas is coming out. Um, and so really, there's this idea that's being spread in the early 20th century that, you know, all Japanese are essentially the descendants of the samurai, and they all need to live in accordance with certain samurai virtues, mm -hmm. especially like this um, absolute loyalty towards now the emperor. Mm -hmm. um you know they have to they should be frugal they should be honest um there's all sorts of quite conservative virtues mm -hmm. that you know essentially are, are are used to 
impose this new ideology um, on the Japanese people. And I mean, it has to be said, these samurai virtues are not, they are things that, okay, some samurai might have um, mentioned in the early modern period and before. Mm -hmm. They certainly weren't universal. Um, mm -hmm. It's very comparable to chivalry in that way. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's this idea of chivalry, but when you actually look at the European medieval period, what chivalry meant to whom is, is very, very diverse. And I mean, that's something I, I, I do like to emphasize actually in, in all, just about all of my research is that most of these dynamics are things we are seeing elsewhere. I mean, especially in Europe and North America, um, these aren't uniquely Japanese in a lot of ways. Okay. Okay. I was thinking, I'm thinking a lot as well. I'm glad you mentioned that about the, the idea of crossover. Cause it, when you read your bio and everything and you, you look at your, your publications, you have, you expressly um, state an interest in the crossover. So crossover in, in discussions and treatments of emotionality, but also you mentioned earlier on the film Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, which is a Jim Jarmusch film in which Forrest Whitaker plays a very eccentric character who really believes that an old mafia, like an old, like a haggard, like a declining group of, a declining mafioso group of old men, aging men. Forrest Whitaker is Ghost Dog and believes that he is the retainer of one of the characters and basically becomes an assassin for him. So kind of like a ninja um, who just secretly goes places and assassins. But that, that film is about nostalgia. It's a nostalgic, it's mm -hmm. like, there's a declining set of characters and set of figures. Mm. And the, the mafia gang are old and they're, they're past their prime and they're weak and they're, 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 you know, their time has passed. And Forrest Whitaker is reading the Hagakura regularly throughout the book. Um, mm. That's what he's meditating on. And the Hagakura itself was a book that was written at, at, in the kind of twilight of an era. It's a very nostalgic mm -hmm. book about what samurais used to be. And you mm -hmm. read it and it's like, in the olden days, People were proper warriors, but now, and so that there's, I've been interested in, in that, that film as a kind of cross-cultural text, the way we can mm -hmm. identify with myths and fantasies of other cultures that produce mm -hmm. new identities. And you've written a lot about that kind of thing as well. Could you tell us a bit mm -hmm. more about, about this nostalgic mm -hmm. connect, identificatory kind of construction of identity in different ways? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's a really good point. I mean, that's really at the heart of so much of this is this this kind of nostalgic yearning for you know an idealized past mm. um, that often never existed. And, I mean, the Hagakure, as you said, is it's a really good example of this. The you know Yamamoto Tsunetomo who writes this thing, um, you know, you read it, you know, it kind of starts off with like the way of the warriors found in death, and you know, it's all death focused, and you know that it, it lends itself beautifully to um, Ghost Dog. Mm. Um, it was also editions were printed and given to soldiers in the Second World War, especially the 1940s, um, with, you know, kind of these choice passages selected for that. Mm. Um, yeah, the thing is, Yamamoto, you know, he himself, he's living in the late um, 17th century, and he's thinking about it. He'd never really experienced war. He's thinking about, you know, the warfare of the 16th century and the exploits mm. of, like, the, the domainal lords um, in the little domain he was in. Um, in southwestern Japan. And so he's nostalgically thinking about a period that he never experienced. And even though he's got this great focus on death, 
you know, I mean, I think he dies of old age. I don't know if he was close to his 80s. Um, you know, he kind of retires to a temple and, you know, he, he didn't go out in a, in a blaze of glory, mm. which you would think when you read his text. And I mean, you look at someone like, um, yeah, the author, um, Yukio Mishima, mm-hmm. you know, just, you know, commits suicide in kind of a theatrical failed coup attempt in mm. um, 1970, I think, in Tokyo. Um, and one of his biggest influences is the Hagakure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an English, there's a wonderful English translation of Mishima's kind of musings on the Hagakure. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we see what it does in the Second World War, but there is this nostalgia in all these early modern texts, which are now cited so widely mm-hmm. for something that was there before. And it's always looking for some kind of ideal that was, that was there. But um, when you start looking for that ideal and you start looking at those earlier times, um, it's almost never there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's always referring when something refers back to you know a, a better earlier time, and then you look at that earlier time. It seems that in that earlier time, they're also referring back to an even better yeah. earlier time, and you keep going back until everything just kind of um, vanishes in the the mists of time. <laughs> yeah. So, what about the cross cultural? I mean, when we hmm. we once met at a um, at a conference in Durham, and we talked mm-hmm. a lot about. The, the kind of the transmission of jujitsu and judo around the world mm-hmm. and you kind of it really op- you opened my eyes to the extent to which um you mentioned the ships that were produced like that were made in Tyneside and uh, and, and mm-hmm. around the world and used in different wars and portrayed and so on um tell us about the the I mean, I, I could ask about the transmission of judo and jujitsu, but mm. I mean, what has your work focused on in terms of the cross-cultural dimensions? What have, mm. you, what have you written specifically about? Yeah, so I think, I mean, one thing, if, if we're looking at kind of an older narrative of Japanese history, um, which isn't entirely incorrect, but is that, you know, in the, in the late 1860s, 1870s, we have this real kind of rejection of the past and looking towards, you know, ideas of civilization and enlightenment that are coming from the West. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's certainly true that Japan is trying to, you know, gather knowledge around the world. There's Japanese missions traveling all around the world, specialists, um, they're bringing in foreign advisors. And there's this great kind of exchange of ideas going on at the time, which is mainly at that point going from the West to Japan, from the United States and also from Europe mm-hmm. to Japan. Um, it's not uncritical one-way traffic though and I think one thing that I've really been noticing more and more is how much that's also then kind of traveling the other way and if if we look at something like um, I mean Bushido is a good example there that you know most people in Japan had rejected the samurai they'd rejected um, kind of all of that as as kind of an unpleasant reminder of the feudal past Mm -hmm. but the thing is when you travel to, let's say, Victorian Britain, you know, Victorian Britain, it's in the middle of this great chivalric revival. Mm. Um, you know, in, back in Japan in the 1870s, they're tearing down their own castles. But when these diplomatic missions come to London, you know, they're visiting the queen in a castle. Mm. You know, they're, they're touring the Tower of London, which is, you know, this obsolete castle, which is now kind of a military museum. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, wow, what, what are they doing here? Why do they have all these obsolete weapons lying around? And then they realize that actually, you know, people are, are really celebrating this past and like keeping these things around at, for kind of an educational purpose. And it's really, I think, that realization that they then go back and say, okay, let's stop tearing these castles down. 
and actually, <laughs> you know, maybe we don't need to, you know, just scrap everything. Yeah. And there's much more of an appreciation and then an, a, an attempt to kind of find parallels. And this is one thing what, I mean, as I argue, where, where Bushido really comes from is an attempt to recreate something um, kind of akin to Victorian gentlemanship. Okay. Because, I mean, in, if we're looking at the late 19th century, you know, the British Empire is the largest empire in the world. Um, there are these very strong ideas that, you know, the, the British gentleman is essentially, you know, the key to the strength of the empire. Um, you know, I mean, if, if that can be kind of economic, you know, British merchants, we, we have these, you know, these legends about, you know, wars being won on the playing fields of Eton. Yes. Um, but, but one thing we have is this, um, there's a very strong idea that you can trace the modern gentleman back to the medieval knight and medieval chivalry and knighthood. And in the 1890s, people in Japan start making the same connection saying, well, wait, we kind of had a feudal knighthood. Um, we can kind of make something like gentlemanship. And they essentially kind of create Bushido and the original Bushido theories, the first ones that come out in the early 1890s are very closely mapped onto kind of Victorian ideals. Mm. And, but what I want to highlight here is it, 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 while it is kind of going in that direction at the start, soon after the Sino-Japanese war, people in Britain are then looking at Japan and saying, well, actually, wow, yeah, you know, that is like a true kind of ancient spirit. We need something like that. And they're actually start lamenting how the, the, sh the spirit of knighthood has declined in Britain, mm -hmm. but how Japan has managed to retain it over, you know, countless centuries. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's going back and forth. And then if, if we step across one more to China, for example, um, in the early 1900s, having now defeated or been defeated by Japan, having, you know, suffered kind of the, the, the Boxer Rebellion. Um, in China, people are now saying, well, actually, we also need to rediscover our ancient martial spirit. And they are now being inspired by both Japan and Europe. Yeah. And so this, this which I think we we'd normally call kind of entangled histories as, as these ideas are going yeah. all around and kind of reinforcing one another. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> what was I going to say? I mean, the 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 thing with um, Japanese arts, like um, like like, well, the new art of judo, mm -hmm. developed by Jigoro Kano, and um, we tend to easily orientalize that and and see it as very like quintessentially Japanese, and it's it, it's associated with these Eastern philosophies. But actually, Kano was was one of these modernizers, wasn't he? Who, mm -hmm. who looked at concepts like Olympic ideals of sporting and, and decency mm. and, and formalizing systems and rules and tidying things up. So, mm. but, but I mean, his relationship with the concept, Western concepts like sport or Western mm -hmm. versions of sport was quite complex too, wasn't it? Quite ambivalent mm. about the status of these things that we're appealing to, but we don't want to embrace them entirely because we don't want to mm. sell everything. Yeah, I mean, Kano's active and I mean, incredibly influential at, at probably the most important period for the martial arts in general. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, on, on the one hand, you know, he's, he's kind of recreating this, um, well, almost creating this new sport of judo. Um, anything with do at the end of it is probably a late 19th century creation. Mm. Um, before that, they were the, the you had jutsu, like you had kenjutsu, you had jujutsu, which is more like arts. 
and then they kind of decide to make them more deep and philosophical by making them ways or do. So then judo is, you know, kind of the the way. But if so, on the one hand, you know, Kano does have this very strong kind of patriotic movement and trying to do something very national. But on the other hand, I mean, his his ideas about um, you know, kind of combining these spiritual elements with the physical. You know, this isn't going back to, you know, some Zen master centuries before. You know, he's, he's very heavily influenced by um, Herbert Spencer, who is now generally kind of put, um, seen as kind of the, the great founder of kind of social Darwinism, so to speak. Um, and that's what really influences Kano. And I mean, a lot of his writings essentially are, um, are copying things that, that Spencer has argued about. And this is something that's very common um, in Europe as well. I mean, if we look at like the Tolna movement in Germany, that, you know, this kind of the, um, the importance of combining the physical with the spiritual mm. or the mental, and that, you know, these physical activities are also ways of self-cultivation. Mm-hmm. And Kano really buys into this. And I mean, he contributes a lot to it. Um, but then this is also where we get this, this whole, um, kind of connection of especially kind of Zen and the martial arts. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is essentially a modern invention. I mean, if, if we go back to the pre-modern period, um, like this connection of like this, or this idea of kind of the Zen samurai um, is a bit of a myth. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a few texts that have been carefully selected to kind of bolster this, but most of that um, is essentially a product of the period around kind of 1900. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and, and that's just another case where, you know, we do have this very interesting interaction between Japan um, and especially the West, where then Kano's ideas are becoming very influential in the West. And um, obviously, judo becomes very popular. We have um, supposedly, you know, Teddy Roosevelt supposedly um, practicing it. Um, we, you know, the suffragette movement becoming very interested in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Zen obviously really takes off in, um, in the West as well. I mean, all over Europe and, and North America. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's people are, are really recognizing things, um, from their own cultures, I think in one another's cultures. And then it's kind of the self reinforcing mm-hmm. cycle. Okay. Um, and finally, I guess castles, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've never, I mean, I like, everyone likes castles, I think, there's, there's, <laughs> but uh, I think that you love castles. Like, <laughs> you seem to be, is it just, or is it not the castles, but is it just that they're so kind of photogenic that, that you're always posting online about castles? Because yeah. you take your selfie in front of whichever castle you either are visiting or wish you were visiting or have visited or hope to visit in the future. What yeah. is it with castles then? What's the, what's the castle thing? Well, yeah, I wish everyone loved castles, um, but yeah, they, uh, I guess a, a big part of it is just like, um, essentially giving an intellectual historian, um, something with kind of a, a material visual aspect. <laughs> mm. Um, and yeah, I just kind of, I, I really like, I guess the aesthetic is, is very, um, interesting. And I mean, obviously the scale of, of the sites and I mean, they're, they are very, very interesting for me though. Um, more than kind of the, the details about, you know, how, how deep the moat is or how thick the walls are or, or this and that. I'm, I'm really interested in 
more kind of the public history of the site and the things that aren't actually there anymore often. I mean, if we look at the, the Japanese case, um, you know, castles, most of them, they were obsolete actually long before the 1860s. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the Meiji Restoration, you know, you have these giant fortifications in quite central urban locations, and they decide, well, we don't need them anymore. They tear them down, and they end up um, essentially putting um, garrisons of the new imperial army in there. Mm. I mean, part of this is just pragmatic because, you know, they are creating a new army. They need space for it, and Mm. they have these big spaces that have emptied out. And what it ends up being is that you, until 1945, you have massive urban garrisons. And that has a huge impact on um, Japanese society as a whole in the imperial period and all the way into the obviously events of the 1930s and 1940s. Mm-hmm. After 1945, um, you know, the, the military is completely disbanded under the American occupation um, until 1952. The Americans take over a lot of the castles until they leave, but most of the castles are then um, converted into public spaces. They're turned into parks. Mm-hmm. They're turned into um, some universities. Um, sometimes they're athletic facilities. And they put baseball stadiums in them, cycling tracks. Um, and then they start rebuilding a lot of them out of concrete, mm-hmm. usually because, I mean, it's the 1950s. Um, concrete is, is very durable, and they've just been through a, a war that, you know, burned down much of the country. So, mm-hmm. you know, it makes sense to build out of concrete. So then Japan suddenly is covered in, in concrete castles. And what these, these, these new castles do is, you know, they provide a connection between, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, and the period before the 1860s. In other words, before the empire, mm-hmm. um, and before this kind of problematic 80-year history that kind of ended in, in disaster for uh, people in Japan and, and throughout East Asia. Um, after... A while if we go to castles now like that whole modern history has been completely erased um, there are almost no traces of the military anywhere in there and, and that's what I quite like about these castles is going to them and comparing them with the original sites and looking for some of these artifacts because mm-hmm. if you look carefully you, you can still find them if you know what you're looking for you will find little memorials you sometimes will find some bunkers you you will find things that usually aren't signposted or anything else mm-hmm. because the entire focus like in Europe, is going to be on the medieval hmm. period, but they're going to ignore kind of the modern military history. And I mean, I've been working on a, a little video series about castles recently, and I've, I've got a couple which kind of look at this this, this lost modern history. Um, it's just just on YouTube, it's Japan's modern castles, if I can throw a plug in there. Okay, yeah, all right. Uh, so it's, it's easy enough to, if we sit, what, do we search your surname in Japan's modern castles, or do we just search? Yeah, just, probably just Japan's modern castles. It's on my website as well, and I mean, I've got two episodes up right now and the next one should be up at the end of this week or so. Um, but, and I mean, Oh yeah. See if we, uh, actually go to castles, it's probably in or media, either one of those there's, there's um, publications. There's no other, I think. Yeah. The Japan's if, if, yeah, if you go down to the, There's podcast stuff there, but and above that, at the top of the other section there, right oh, there. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, one castles, got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we um, go to allikebenish.com. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I just one thing I I like to stress with with the castle project as well. I mean, the castle book 
which I wrote together with Ron Zeigenberg at Penn State University, is that, you know, these are also very common themes if we look in other countries as well. I mean, these are not uniquely Japanese. Mm. Um, if we look at, for example, how, um, I mean, the military has used a lot of castles in the UK in the modern period as well. I mean, it's no coincidence that so many regimental museums now are in castles. Mm. Um, sometimes they will talk about the modern past, sometimes they won't. If we look at like Dover Castle with kind of the, the huge bunkers and everything underneath that, mm. um, if we go up to Ripon Castle, which is um, a very nice ruin, but in there they'll talk about the conscientious objectors in the First World War mm -hmm. um, who were arrested and sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then they were held in Ripon Castle. And so there is some acknowledgement of, of the modern past here. And I think in, in Europe, the modern past of these castles is also very um, complicated. Um, in Germany, especially, you can, you can imagine. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. in a nutshell, um, National Socialists love castles. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the extent to which that, that past is actually still visible or to what extent it's been hidden or, yeah, kind of purposely erased, I think is, is fascinating. Okay, so the so you're doing the you're doing videos at the moment about these things. What's the next research project? What's the what are the next publications or um, any kind? Well, I guess the main thing I'm working on now is a kind of a larger um, book project, looking at um, kind of the concept of medievalism more globally, and and medievalism, what. I mean, there's is this, the use of medieval symbols and ideas after the medieval period has passed. Mm -hmm. So essentially, how are medieval symbols used in the modern period? And I mean, this is, this is something I've kind of looked at, um, obviously, in, in looking at how the samurai have been used in the modern period, how castles have kind of been reinterpreted in the modern period. I mean, these are kind of examples of medievalism. Another one would be, you know, for example, Japanese swords. Mm -hmm. um, and I've looked at this in various kind of themes along those lines in the Japanese context, but I'm actually now really interested in kind of a global study of this because there's been a, a, an incredible amount of research on medievalism in Europe. I mean, like mm -hmm. the Victorian chivalric revival and such, um, also in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of, of research in the U on like American medievalism. We think of Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee at King Arthur's court in the 1880s. He's kind of making fun of the whole medievalist movement in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm actually arguing that it's a much broader global thing. Um, if we looked at, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, diplomats from Japan, um, but also diplomats from China, from Thailand, from everywhere, who would be coming to Britain or anywhere in Europe, they are visiting monarchs and rulers in medieval castles. Mm. So European medievalism is unavoidable. And we look at some of the colonial buildings that people are building around the world as well. And these are often kind of faux castles. They are, you know, this kind of Gothic revival. Mm -hmm. um, and there is kind of this, I think, global medievalist moment um, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And um, that's really kind of what I'm exploring at the moment. So, um, yeah, hopefully that won't take uh, too much longer, but we'll see. Do you think that we're still, we still live in a kind of medievalist era now, or is it, or, or would you, would you put it on a, into a different historical frame? Would you say there was a high moment and there's still remnants of it, but, but 
I think it's it's it changes, but I think it's still here. Um, there have been there have been peaks. I mean, I think that some people trace it up to the First World War and say in Europe it, it kind of declined after that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's probably 1945 is a bit more of a watershed. After 1945, I think there's a decline, but I think we've really seen a resurgence of it in the last 30 years. Um, and if we look at some of the debates that have been going on and the resurgence resurgence of nationalism in Europe, mm. um, that has very strongly kind of mm. medievalist connotations. Because, I mean, one of the things that people are looking for in the well, medieval period, which, you know, it varies a lot depending on which country we're looking at. Mm. But the the so-called medieval is often where people try to find their national origins. Mm. Um, you know, this is when, you know, roughly the, the geographic outlines of what we consider our nation kind of came into being. This is when our language kind of came into being. This is, I mean, if we take um, England, for example, this is when uh, we, we start speaking English rather than than French. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of Europe, it's like, oh, well, this is when we start speaking our own language rather than, say, Latin or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not these these are accurate, um, these are the popular ideas today. Um, it's also when people start looking for kind of the origins of their kind of religious groups, for example. Like, when did when did our church in our region actually, this denomination, come together? Um, and that will also often be kind of placed in that sort of period. So regardless of the historical accuracy of these things, I think we've seen a huge resurgence of this kind of thinking um, really all around the West mm-hmm. in the last um, 20, 30 years, after, especially after the end of the Cold War. Um, and kind of, I remember in the, in the 90s, there was a lot of thought talk about, oh yeah, and nationalism is now um, pretty much done and we're moving into something else but um, I don't think we would we would say that now yeah, yeah. the end of history <laughs> yeah and I mean it, it, it's fascinating if, if we look at um, also in the United States we look at some of the um, some of the events recently and some of the rallies um, and especially from some of the um, kind of the right wing groups um, we do see quite a few kind of medieval symbols coming in there. If it's kind of using Viking imagery, for example, that would also be included in there. Um, Crusader imagery would be another kind of aspect of medievalism in, in well, the West, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in Japan, you know, it's things like samurai that fulfill that role. Okay. That's absolutely fascinating. I've never really thought about it in those terms but i mean there's so much interesting so but we've talked for a while now so i am going to say um oleg benish thank you ever so much for taking the time to talk to me it was great no thanks a lot paul it's great to catch up again